We invite you, if you're able, to remain standing. I want to read Romans 16, at least the first 16 verses of it, to you this morning. We are going to be studying Romans 6 to 8 over the course of the next several weeks. Last week, we did an overview, sort of, of Romans, and we started from the beginning and worked our way forward, really focusing on the theological thread that holds Romans together. Uh, in it, Paul lays out so clearly these words that we just sang, the gospel song, that all are conceived and born in sin, all have sinned, the wages of sin is death, uh, but that Christ, while we were still sinners, came into the world to die for us, and now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if that's all that we get out of Romans is the theology, we've missed half the book. Uh, a good half of the book is dedicated to application, application for the Jews, application for the entirety of the church. And then we get to chapter 16, and we see just how it is that the gospel is put into play. I don't know if you notice, we send out a Friday letter each week, and this week I, I mentioned in there that changed hearts uh, precede corporate change in our lives. And so Paul is very careful here to say, here is the gospel, and then to lay out for us what should it produce. And I think you'll agree with me as we read through this that it's really very lovely. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 16. Commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant at the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponitas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those who, workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. You may be seated. We all have Romans 16, I think, experiences, as we will see in a minute. I want to invite uh, Ingrid Orr to come and, and share with you a little bit about her Romans 16 experience and, and leaning into the gospel. Ingrid is a lovely person. She's not a superstar uh, by her own admission. 
Uh, she and her husband, Greg, are preparing to go on the mission field. She works, as you'll hear, in a local charter school, and, and day after day, week after week, sometimes failing, sometimes uh, by the grace of Christ prevailing, uh, seeks to live out a Romans 16 vision, and I'm going to let her share that with you. Good morning. Um, so before I share about what I do day to day in Grand Rapids, um, 25 years ago, I was part of a church team that uh, went to Russia. Uh, we were in young pioneer camps. Uh, communism had fallen. The Russians didn't quite know what to do with the children that were there to be, if you like, indoctrinated in the communist way, so they invited Christians. That wasn't the coolest part. It was cool, but not the coolest. For me, it was uh, the invitation our team leader received from a small group of Russian Christians in one of the village near to where the camp was. They invited us to come, worship, and share a meal with them. Forward now to January 2019. Uh, Greg and myself were in Europe uh, doing a vision trip through Pioneers, which is the mission agency we are candidates for. Before leaving the US, we had Skyped with a team in Croatia. Um, and we were interested in visiting them and have since been asked to join them. But they put us in contact with not only missionaries in Austria, but also missionaries in the Czech Republic. We had been told we had to see at least two other teams, which really wasn't what I wanted to do, but God had different plans. So in all three European countries, we experienced the warmth and fellowship of believers we had never met before. We worshiped with them, we broke bread with them, and for a short time, we shared their work bringing, to Jesus, bringing Jesus to them, people that had not yet heard of him. So what connects Russia and Europe? For me, it was that somebody who was a believer told somebody else who was a believer that other believers were coming to visit, and they were asked to make us feel welcome, no matter that we didn't speak their language, and no matter that we didn't know their customs. The bond that brought us together was Jesus. So how does that cross over into working in a charter school in Grand Rapids? Well, the charter schools I work with, I work uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. The families I deal with are socially, economically, culturally, and religiously all very different. On any given day, I'm in contact with students from Arab, African, South American, and European countries. Some of them speak English. Some of them don't. Those are the fun ones. Um, because of the diversity of the buildings, I work quite closely with African-American students, Muslim students, Latino, and Caucasian students. Some of these students are believers. Some are not. Regardless of whether they know Jesus yet or will ever accept him as Lord and Savior, I am challenged every day to remember that they are created in the image of God, just as I am, and I am called by Jesus to be a light in the places that he places me. Sometimes my light shines brightly, sometimes it doesn't. This week, probably because I've been a lot more aware of how I lean into Jesus in my daily life, I've seen him place other believers in my path where I needed an encouraging word, a warm smile, and a cup of coffee loaded with sugar to lift me up. 
I've been reminded again of how Jesus is the one who brings us together as believers. This week, and it is hard to explain because you kind of sometimes just have to be in the moment, but for me this week, one of the highlights was one of my high school girls. She's an African-American who I've known since she was about two. She's like any other teenager. She's a bit on the naughty side, definitely good at giving you sass, but all she needs is love. When she's having a hard day, she'll come into the school office and stand there and moan and groan about why she doesn't like her class and why the teacher's bothering her. This happened this week. Um, she'd had a rough day, came in, and after the usual spiel, looked at me and said, Miss Orr, do you love me? And, you know, it's not what I expected on a Thursday morning. And I look at this child and those big brown eyes, she's kind of yay big and could probably take me out if she needed to, but I know she could, honestly. Uh, I looked at her and said, of course I love you. Do you love me? To which, to my total surprise, she said, of course I love you, and walked out of the office. She didn't realize I needed to hear that that day as much as she needed to hear from me that I loved her. The only thing that she and I have in common are the fact that we're both believers. She's brought up in a Christian home. I know her mother quite well. And the number of times she's told me, I'm on my knees for that girl, Miss Orr, is amazing. So in my own silly little way, this is how I've seen Romans 16 this week. May God's peace and joy be with you as you go through your week. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Can you join me in prayer as we approach this passage? Father, we're grateful. For your word, which is true, which confronts us, not only in the heady places of theology, but in the, the very practical places of a school office on a Thursday morning. Father, thank you for Ingrid's willingness to come and share with us this morning. Continue to pray uh, our richest, your richest blessings upon her. Father, we pray even more than that, that you would help us all to, to lean into Jesus, lean into gospel truths as we seek to see the gospel community that is here in Romans uh, come to fruition in our own lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. If you look at your outline uh, this morning, uh, basically that first point is sort of the uh, the main idea. The true gospel creates true community. I've already mentioned to you that uh, Romans is oftentimes uh, appreciated and shared a couple of quotes with you last week from guys like Calvin and Luther and others for the clarity of the gospel presentation. Like if you understand the truths as they are laid out, particularly in the first eight chapters of, uh, of Romans, you understand the core of the Christian gospel. But, and this is where I want to come with the overview this week, and as we look to the Holy Spirit in terms of the equipping uh, in the weeks to come, if that's all that we get out of Romans, then, then we've missed a large part of what Paul is trying to minister to his people. Because to these people in, in Rome and, and to churches across the world, he is trying to say, he is trying to demonstrate that when the gospel has truly taken root in your life, 
When, when that simple little song that, that we sang earlier, when you have surrendered your life to the truth of the gospel, it will bear fruit that is beautiful and attractive in the entirety of the world. Uh, and, and this is the, the challenge, this is the invitation, this is what Paul wants us to see, this is what we see when we read Romans forward and backwards. And so I want to dive into understanding sort of this second part, the true gospel creates true community, by asking ourselves, what are the characteristics of that community? And I've divided it basically into two major categories with some subcategories. The, the first major category is that true or tr the true gospel creates warm community. So internally, for people who are believers, there is a warmth there. And then secondly, it creates a purposeful community. There is a, an extension element to the community that pushes us out and encourages us out into the world in ways that will subvert uh, the, the normal ways that our world wants to think. So I want to run through that. And if you notice, I actually have the ABCDEs of this community. Uh, we got affection, burden-bearing, common cause, diversity, and enfolded in Christ. So let's start with the, the internal community, the warm community that is created. You heard some of that uh, in Ingrid's testimony. Uh, there she is at a charter school uh, with a, another believer in a time when they both needed encouragement and the ability to share that. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Of course I love you. Uh, we, we need that kind of affection that is shared, whether it is here in our local context, whether it's overseas with people that we don't know, no matter where it is, whether you're at the grocery store or in the church, this is one of the things that marks the community of Christ. And we certainly see that here in this passage. You know, a number of times Paul talks about in verses 8, verse 9, verse 12, he talks about so-and-so being his beloved or my beloved so-and-so. And then in verse 13, we see uh, Rufus's mother, who is my mother also. I mean, there's a, there's a tenderness, there's a caring for, that, there's an affection in that relationship that Paul has with this woman who's not actually related to him, but has become his mother in the faith. And a little bit like Ingrid became a mother to this young woman who she was encountering. And then Paul actually tells the church, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss, verse 16. You know, let your affection be known. You know, don't just keep it inside. Sometimes we are very affectionate on the inside, uh, but Paul is encouraging us, you know, let your affection be known. Greet one another with a holy kiss. May that be part of how you show that the gospel has taken root in your heart and life that you care for other people, that you are using your words, that you are taking opportunities to uh, demonstrate love and affection and care for those who share a union with Christ, who bear the name Christian. 
Now, I just note that there are no age limits on this. There are no uh, gifting matrixes that uh, would say some people should be caring and other people shouldn't. This is something that, that we are all, as we are rooted in the gospel, we're all invited to be affectionate, to, to, to love those that you are sitting with. You know, as you look around uh, and, and you, you share a row, sometimes with people who are very different than you, different stage of life, different, uh, different backgrounds. There could be all sorts of things that make us different. But in Christ, we all come together, and the call is to be affectionate. It marks the community of Christ. The second thing is, and in some ways it flows out of the first, is that they bear one another's burdens. Uh, we see this in a couple of different ways specifically in this passage. In, in verse 3 and then I think also in verse 7, uh, we see that there's Prisca, uh, who is also known as Priscilla, uh, and Aquila. Uh, they risked their necks for Paul's sake, it says. So this lovely couple who were tent makers, they ministered alongside of Paul uh, in Corinth and Ephesus. Now they're back in Rome uh, hosting a house church. They had been along the way and they risked their necks for Paul's life. They recognized that this brother was facing things like the lions, he was facing things like stoning, he was facing things like trials and imprisonments and all these things, and they came alongside of him in a particular way and risked their necks in order to save him. Verse 7, he talks about Andronicus and Junia, his kinsmen, who also were fellow prisoners along with Paul. They, too, knew that burden of coming together. And at the very darkest points in our life, coming alongside to bear one another's burdens. Uh, our burdens are what they are, but when we bear them with somebody else, they're, they're halved. And, and, and we bear them more easily because somebody has come alongside of us. Interesting, just between services today, I, I had I, maybe half a dozen people come up to me and comment on this, you know, their experience of, of having a burden halved, having a burden shared, whether it was a health burden, whether it was a financial burden, and, and, and the Church of Christ coming around to, to help them bear that burden and how significant that was and, and what, a, uh, what a sign of the gospel in their life uh, to be cared for, to have their burden shared during a particular time in their life. Maybe you have that testimony. Uh, maybe you can look back and think about that in your life. Maybe you're being called right now to bear somebody else's burden. Maybe somebody you don't know very well. You know, some of it is, is that actual physical engagement. We see that in terms of uh, Priscilla and Aquila and, and Andronicus and Junia, uh, this idea of, of coming alongside, risking their necks. There are other ways. Verse, verses 1 and 2 were introduced to Phoebe, who was a, a leader in the church in Sencria, which is over near Corinth. Uh, it's, we're told in, in verse 2 that she's a patron. She's a patron of, 
of Paul's and a patron of many. What what was a patron? A patron was somebody who had means. Uh, They were wealthy. uh, They could travel. They could do all these certain things. And so the way that her life was organized was that she had a freedom and an ability to get out and, and to move around. She had financial means to support the ministry of Christ. So she came alongside of Paul. She maybe came alongside Priscilla and Aquila, and she said, I am going to take what I've given to help you bear the burden of what God has given you. And she did that financially. She became a patron. You see, there's so many ways in which we can uh, bear the burdens of one another. And this is what it looks like to be part of the, the body of Christ. We, we are among people who, like Ingrid mentioned, we may not have a lot in common with them. Uh, we may not be the same ethnically. We may not be the same uh, in terms of our background, whatever it might be. But there is an intensity uh, in terms of our connection. This is what an Anglican bishop Stephen Neal says, in the fellowship of those who are bound together by personal loyalty to Jesus, the relationship of love reaches an intimacy and an intensity unknown elsewhere. Friendship between the friends of Jesus uh, is unlike any other friendship. And where it is truly experienced, especially across barriers of race, nationality, and language, it is one of the most convincing evidences of the continuing activity of Jesus among humanity. Do you want to be a witness? You know, we, we love one another. We, we bear the burdens of one another. This is our, our fragmented world. We've talked about this. Disconnection. You know, all that we experience in terms of social media has served to disconnect us from true relationship. And what Paul is modeling for us, what he's calling out, what he sees in the church of Rome, what he's experienced, you know, from his time in Ephesus and in Corinth and other places, is he's saying there is something real in terms of the connection. We love one another. We bear one another's burdens. There's an intimacy that is there. And it is attractive, and that's really the second thing, because it's not just internal it also has this external propulsion to it. It it continues to push its way out. And we see this in in a couple of different ways. The first is this. They they have a common cause. This is the whole person. You know, this is the whole point of Romans. Remember last week, we highlighted the fact that, that Paul says in the very beginning, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Five times in that first chapter, he says, gospel, gospel, gospel. This is what I'm about. I'm about proclaiming the gospel. I'm about bringing out the good news that, that Jesus is greater than Caesar, that Jesus is greater than the empire, that Jesus is greater than anything the world has to offer. That is the centrality of what I'm about. And here's this whole group of people uh, that Paul is referencing in terms of affection and burden-bearing, these things, and they are all called to the same thing. Uh, five times in this passage, we are, people are, are told, we're called workers 
for the gospel. We see it in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 9, two times in verse 12. Phoebe is a servant of the gospel. There is a purpose to what these people have come together for. It's not simply that their needs could be met. It's not simply that they would have a bunch of friends. It's not a club. It is, a, it is a gathering for a purpose. They have a common cause that they are pushing for, and that is to show and to tell the gospel into a culture that is not predisposed to accept it, into a culture that is predisposed to say, Roman might, Roman power, Greek wisdom, these are the things that matter. Pursue Bacchus, pursue Aphrodite, pursue all of these other gods, very similar to the culture in which we live now. But Paul and his brothers and sisters, workers in the gospel, say, no, Jesus Christ, he is the center. And, and if you want true community, come and understand the, the true gospel. There's a telos to what God has called them, an end, a purpose. And that's the same for us. Uh, you know, why do we exist here? Why do we come together? We come together in order that we might grow deeper, in order that we might understand Christ, in order that we might care for one another. But ultimately, we come together to proclaim, to tell out, to, to share. I mean, this is the best news, and it's free. It's a free gift of Christ. We, we don't hold on to it. We share and we invite and we welcome others in because that is what God has called us to. He's welcomed us in and we welcome others in. And it doesn't matter where they've been or, or, or what they might look like. The, the second thing that we see here in, in terms of this movement, this purposeful community, is that it's a very diverse community. One of the things that you're struck with as you read Romans 16 is the incredible diversity that exists. Now, of course, you know, when we hear diversity, it's become such a, a trigger word in, in our society in so many ways. We think ethnic diversity. There's lots of ethnic diversity here in Romans chapter 16. You have folks that Paul calls his kinsmen. He calls his brothers. Uh, so they, they're Jews. They're folks like Herodian and, and others who are his kinsmen, Andronicus and Judean, Junia. Uh, these, these are folks that, that are Jewish in origin, nationality, ethnicity. They, they were born, they were circumcised, they received the law, they had that as their background. But then there are also folks in this who are Greek in origin. Verse 14, that group of about five names there that uh, are all Greek names. They, they may have been businessmen who were coming to Rome and they sort of gathered together. Uh, very different background. Hellenists, uh, culture, you know, some of them uh, are named after, after gods. Phoebe, actually, is uh, not of Jewish origin. She is named after a Greek god. Uh, so you see that they, they have backgrounds like that. Uh, Aristobulus uh, is a, most likely a, a Roman aristocrat. Uh, there we have some extant literature in terms of... Uh, you know, just that, that day in, in Aristobulus may have actually been a grandson to Caesar. So wasn't just a, a Roman, he was a Roman of the royal line. 
So there are all sorts of folks here. And this doesn't even mention the slaves, the slaves who, who come from all sorts of different regions, and they were forced under the Pax Romana to come into Rome, and they may have been from Macedonia or Albania or all sorts of other places, uh, but they were not neither, you know, ethnically Roman, Greek, or Jew, all sorts of backgrounds with these. So ethnic diversity, diversity in terms of social class. I've alluded to this as we've gone. You've got aristocrats. You've got uh, you know, people like Aristobulus who can host a house. Priscilla and Aquila were workers, freedmen, and they were able to help support Paul's ministry. Obviously, Phoebe uh, was a patron. Later on in 16, we hear about folks like Gaius and Erastus who were part of the church in Corinth. They, too, were people of means that were able to house and support provide patronage for the church. Then we have folks that are, uh, are slaves. Uh, Narcissus is a very common slave name, Ampliatus. Uh, they, they've found tombstones with the name Ampliatus on it all by itself, which is indicative of no family and a slave. There are several names in here that are very common slave names. So in terms of socioeconomic class, uh, you, you have slave, you have free, you have aristocrats, you have wealthy, you have poor, people who are at very different stages in life. And, and then finally, uh, gender. Uh, one of the things that we see here in Romans chapter 16 is that there are nine women singled out, which is earth-shattering for a, a writing from this period. To us, that doesn't seem you know, very much, you know, nine out of 26. Uh, but, but this was earth-shattering for this time. I mean, Paul worked so easily with men, with women, with slaves, with free, with Greeks, with Jews. It, it became so natural to him. And so nine women singled out. Galatians 3:28 is ringing in her mind. He says, in Christ, there is neither slave nor free Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. And that's exactly what we see in Romans chapter 16. I mean, there's this tremendous welcoming of people, no matter what their background is, no matter what their station in life, no matter what their gender, there's a tremendous welcoming of this, uh, of all, into the community. And again, you know, in a world that is so fragmented, uh, along so many of these lines, whether it be gender, or whether it be ethnicity, or whether it be social class, in a world that's so fragmented, the gospel stands as, as such a beautiful, refreshing alternative to what the world has to offer. Uh, the world offers fragmentation. The gospel invites us to true community. And like, as we understand going through Romans, it starts with the gospel. There, there is an order to this. If you read the Friday letter, you know, I, I mentioned there that, that heart change precedes corporate change. Uh, and, and there is a truth to that. And I think that's why it's so important. I mean, Romans starts, chapters 1 through 8, doctrine. It says, get this right. If you don't get this right, you cannot move to the application section. 
What, what troubles me sometimes is it seems like we try to work backwards, you know, through our politics, through our programs, through what we sometimes call the social gospel. We want to start with the external change and then move it inside. It just doesn't work that way. Paul says if your hearts are not changed, if you don't truly understand and accept who Christ is, it is going to be very difficult for you to have the kind of life that shows the beauty of what true gospel community is. Now, why is that? I think part of the reason is the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is surrender. At the heart of the gospel is surrender. There's humility. The gospel is not about us making our way to God. It's not about us thinking our way to God. It's not about us being moral on our way to God. It's not about us doing deeds of service on our way to God. It is about God coming to us while we were still sinners and saying, I love you, and I am going to send my son to die for you. And as you surrender your life to Jesus, we find that we are brought into the very fellowship of the Trinity. And this is the final thing that I'll just point out to you. We've talked about affection. We've talked about burden bearing. We've talked about a common cause. We talk about diversity. But sort of the secret sauce, uh, the... Uh, you know, the catalyst that makes all of these things react and combust in a way that is so beautiful is the reality of what happens when we are in Christ. You, you notice nine times in this passage, Paul refers to being in Christ or in the Lord. In Christ, verse 3, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, in the Lord, verse 2, verse 11, twice in 12, and also in 13. You know, this is the most common way Paul talks about uh, what we would say being a Christian is. Paul actually, and Jesus incidentally as well, never uses the word Christian to define somebody who is a follower of Jesus. It's only used three times in the New Testament and never by Jesus or never by Paul. Paul, 164 times, talks about being in Christ, in the Lord, or in Him. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is this. When we hear Christian, you know, we think organized religion. Uh, we think, you know, a moral system. We, we think church, all of that. And some of us get stuck there. We get stuck there in different ways, ways that we think that we're Christians. Some of us are stuck there because we're, we're looking at the church and we're really disappointed. And we say, those Christians don't know anything or those Christians are hypocritical. But we're looking at the wrong thing. What, what, what Paul is pointing us is to say, look at that person and are they in Christ? Are they in the Lord? That's what Paul is, is, is leading us and helping us to see in Christ. The church has union with God the three in one. We, we sang that at the sixth verse of, of that hymn this morning. You know, this is what we're talking about, a union with Christ, that He becomes us. We're enfolded into Him. John Stott 
talked about this in a lecture that he gave in 1983 uh, following a presidential prayer breakfast in which he was invited to be the speaker. This was for specifically Christians just talking about uh, the state of the world and, and our, our mission as Christians in that world. And he says, to be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or our clothes are in a closet but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of His followers. And this is what we are all being called into as we see Romans 16 and we say, yes, I want that. I want the affection, I want the burden bearing, I want the, the telos, the common cause, the diversity, I want all of that. Then the question is, are we in Christ? Are we leaning into Him? Have we surrendered to so different? I mean, that's, this is why the gospel is so countercultural. Our culture says we get it by shouting louder. We get it by, you know, our money. We get it by our, our wit and wisdom. We get it by all of these things. But the gospel says, are you surrendered to Christ? Are you surrendered to Him? What distinguishes the true followers of Jesus is neither their creed, this is Stott again, their code of ethics, their ceremonies, their culture, their politics. What distinguishes them is Christ. What is often mistakenly called Christianity is in essence neither a religion nor a system, but it is a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Brothers and sisters, as we move forward in this, uh, in this series, you know, we, we are going to be talking about how it is that we live there. I, I trust, not all of you, but I trust many of you, you know, want to be in Christ. You want to experience that. You want to live out of that. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The Father loves, the Son comes and gives His life for us, and the Holy Spirit connects us to the reality of what it means to be in Christ. And my prayer, as we really dig into that third part in chapter 6 to 8, that we would truly be equipped so that our community looks like this community, so that the, the fruit that was born among the Roman Christians, among the Corinthian Christians, would be born here because our world desperately, desperately needs it. Last words. Our concern as followers of Jesus is not with a religion called Christianity. It's also not concerned with a culture called Western civilization. But our concern is with a person, Jesus of Nazareth, the one, the only God-man who lived the perfect life of love, died on the cross for our sins, bearing in His own person the condemnation that we deserve, was raised in triumph from the grave, and is now alive, accessible, and available to us through the Holy Spirit. He is coming again one day in sheer magnificence that every knee should bow to Him. This is the gospel, and it is taken root in the heart of all those who believe. And it's this person, 
who changes, has affected every aspect of our lives, it's this person with whom we are concerned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you would help us to be these people. We know that we are. We know that those of us who have surrendered in repentance and faith look to you. We know that we are in Christ and we can never be removed from that. But Father, we confess that our lives so often reflect something else. We're so easily drawn to other voices, other ideologies. We do not, we are not captivated by the gospel in such a way that it bears this kind of fruit. And so, Father, I, I pray for myself that you would help me to be uh, reflective in my own life uh, about ways in which this gospel is not bearing this kind of fruit. And I would pray that for us as a group of Jesus followers, those who are in Christ gathered here today, that rather than looking at where it falls short in other people, we would be emboldened by the fact that you love us, not because of anything in us, but because you've decided to love us and set your affections on us, that we would look at ourselves and we would pray with David, search us, know us, try us, lead us in the way everlasting. And Lord, we pray, we, we pray, we beg that our community would look like this community. That, that all would come and would find a welcome, that we would not ever be guilty of hoarding the blessing, but that we would share, and we would share freely because we've surrendered. And we know, we know that it is only at the foot of the cross that any of us can find grace, and it's only at the empty tomb that we find the power to live for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.